Well, please turn now in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our, our journey through this, uh, this letter. It's right at the end of our New Testament. 2 Peter is one of these books that can be hard to find sometimes. So if you're struggling, if you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 1018. But if you're using your own Bible, just find Revelation and then turn uh, back a few chapters. You will go through Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, and then 2 Peter. And this morning we're in 2 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1 rather, where we pick up at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice borne from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Our Father in heaven, we ask now for the help of your Spirit as we come to study your word. We pray that he would open up your holy, infallible, and unchangeable word, and that he would press it deep into our hearts. Teach us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in chapter 1, Peter has been exhorting his readers to a full-orbed and rigorous pursuit of a life transformed by the gospel, in contrast to the false teachers who are promoting a view that divorced faith from ethics, or rather said that faith in Christ released the believer from ethical constraints. That antinomian view, that lawless view, was endangering these churches and threatening to draw them away from Christ altogether. Throughout the 20th century, there was a simmering controversy around what was called non-lordship salvation. And the big question was, can someone come to Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord? In other words, as Christ evangelistic calls, can we call someone to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, but then wait for a later second step in which they submit to Him as Lord. In more so-called seeker-sensitive wings of the church, the answer was yes. That someone can be a true Christian and yet live in open and unrepentant violation of God's law to be discipled into that obedience at a later stage. 
the result was that there were, there, there are many who call themselves Christians, but who live by the standards and morality of the world around them. Many who consider themselves as free from the specter of hell and on the road to heaven, but yet living lives that were virtually unchanged by their professed faith in Christ. Of course, such a view wasn't just limited to the late 20th century. It is something that has come up throughout the history of the church, and indeed, that's what we're seeing here in Second Peter. But neither is its opposite view, new or novel. The idea that if somebody wants to come to Christ, they must straighten themselves up first. There was a notorious question asked of men entering the ministry in the presbytery of Ochterarder in the 18th century. The statement that became known as the Ochterarder Creed, and men who were being ordained were asked to affirm the statement, it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. Or, to straighten out some of the wonky wording, it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin before we come to Christ. Now, it was a bit of a badly phrased statement that takes a little picking apart, but at the heart, the question was addressing a view that had taken hold across the Church of Scotland, that before someone comes to Christ in faith, they must forsake their sin. Before coming to Christ, they must reform their morals. They must turn away from their sin. In other words, they must make themselves presentable before they come to Christ. Now, you understand both of those views are wrong. And both of those views give a wrong impression of Christ. And both of these views bring with them the danger that there are those who think that they have embraced the gospel, but who in reality have not actually come to know Christ, but really have only come to know a grotesque caricature of Christ. The latter view presenting Jesus as a reluctant Savior who must be convinced of your worthiness for salvation, and the former view presenting Christ's law as something distasteful and burdensome, a hard pill to swallow that people must be eased into. But of course, Scripture steers us away from both of these views. Instead, affirming that Christ is a ready and willing Savior for whosoever will come to Him. But you remember Spurgeon's quote that we used last week? Whoever is willing to have Christ Christ is willing to have him. In your wretched condition, as you are in all your sin, Jesus stands as ready, as a ready and willing Savior, but he stands also as a king who will welcome and will welcome rebels and insurgents back, right? John Piper's illustration from last week. But only if they lay down the weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission in order to receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love, swearing fealty 
to their sovereign. And you remember how Paul puts it in Romans 10, 9. You say to Paul, Paul, how are we saved? How is somebody saved from their sin? One of the most elementary gospel questions. Paul, how are we saved? And Romans 10, 9, he gives his answer. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Savior? No, he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's what Peter's been driving home in the first chapter of this letter. While holiness of life is not required in order to lay hold of the gospel, the riches of that gospel given to the holy, unworthy sinner naturally compel a holiness in life. Or to put it another way, our justification compels sanctification. The two inseparable and always going hand in hand. But now, as Peter continues on, as he continues to go through what we have noted as a distinctly robust and careful defense and application of the apostolic gospel, he now changes his focus to go really from the content of the gospel, which he's been looking at so far, to now looking at the source of this full-orbed gospel that he preaches. Now, perhaps here Peter is anticipating pushback from the false teacher. Right? Perhaps here he is anticipating the false teacher saying to this, these congregations, yeah, well, that, that's just Peter's point of view. Uh, that's just Peter's hobby horse. Right? Or maybe... This is speculation, of course, but maybe if they know anything of Peter's background, they know anything of Peter's going off with the Judaizers. Remember in, in Galatians, Paul talks about he has to confront Peter to his face because he's gone off with these Judaizers. Maybe they're thinking, well, the false teachers would say, well, you know Peter. Peter loves his law, and it's gotten him into trouble already, so let's just... Uh, Let's just hold him at a little arm's length, right? This is just Peter's point of view. It's his, it's his hobby horse. It's his subjective slant on the place of the law in the life of the believers. And, and let's just evaluate it in the marketplace of ideas. Or perhaps, and I think this is what actually Peter explicitly alludes to here. He is contemplating the, the nearness of his death. And he wants to equip his readers for the long haul, right? Where Peter is not just interested in putting out a fire here. He wants to use this crisis in the churches of Asia Minor to, to strengthen them and, and edify them and equip them for the long haul so that they are going to be ready even after he is gone for the undoubtedly new assaults that will come upon them. And so Peter wants them to see that, that what he is saying isn't just his own personal point of view, but that his apostolic gospel and its implications that he is preaching comes not just from his intellect, not just from his philosophy, but it flows from two places. One, his understanding of Scripture that we'll look at next week. 
but first here flows from his experience at the transfiguration. Right, look at how, how he argues here in verse 16. So verse 15, he says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For, or, or because, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his, his majesty. What distinguishes Peter's teaching from the false teachers? It is, he says here first, that he has beheld, he has been an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. As he goes on to say specifically, on that Mount of Transfiguration. Right? And so in contrast to the false teachers who were promoting cleverly devised myths, Peter wants his readers to say what he says flows directly out of what he saw of Jesus Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration. Now, it might at first appear to us to be a bit of a non sequitur. We might think, okay, Peter, that is undoubtedly a significant moment. But, but really, what does it have to do with what we're looking at here? Um, we, might, we might think, if, if we're talking about law and gospel and how they relate in the believer's life, if we're talking about um, uh, the fruits of the gospel in the lives of people's life in the in the lives of Christians. If we're talking about the necessity of of holiness in the lives of believers, surely Peter, it's not the Mount of Transfiguration you should be appealing to. It's the Sermon on the Mount that you should be appealing. To. You heard Jesus expound the law on that mountain, and you heard that radical interiorization of the law that that Jesus was describing that were to be the character of his disciples. Or we might say, well, well, maybe, Peter, it'd be better just now if you appealed to how you're an eyewitness of Jesus' confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and how you were there when you heard Jesus tackle their insufficient view of the law, and how you were there when you heard Jesus take on their misconceptions and their misapplications. Or maybe we would say, even Peter, Maybe it would be better if you appealed here to the, you're being a witness of the resurrected Christ. You've, you've made mention of that already at the beginning of the letter. And surely, seeing Jesus risen from the grave, that would be something that you could appeal to now as we make the connection with our new life in Christ. Of course, that's, none of that is what Peter appeals to. He appeals to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he does it uh, not because he's made a mistake. So why has he? Well, I think if we just do a little digging here, if we scratch the surface a, a little bit, I think we see that Peter appeals to the transfiguration because it gives a unique glimpse, a foretaste of the coming world, of that kingdom of the age to come that he has talked about in verse 11. So you remember the scene, Matthew 16. 
We're brought to this enormous high point of the gospel. When at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, who do you say that I am? He's just asked his disciples what other people are saying. And they've responded that, that some people think that Jesus is a prophet. Uh, some people think Jesus is Elijah. Uh, some people think Jesus is Jeremiah. Some people think that Jesus is, is John the Baptist. But Jesus then asks his disciples, these men who have been with him day in and day out for almost three years, he asks them who, who they think that he is. And do you remember, it's, it's Peter who responds with that glorious declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? Caesarea Philippi is, is the most northerly part on Jesus' journey, and it's there that, that Peter makes this, this great high point of the gospel. He makes this great declaration that here, the disciples, they've actually got it. For everything that they get wrong, they, they understand the significance of what they have seen and heard from Jesus. They put the pieces together, and they understand that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another herald of the coming messianic king. He's not just come as, as one who is declaring the, the future blessings of God, but that He is Himself the one to whom all of the prophets had pointed and spoken of. In that confession, the disciples through Peter confessed that they understood that Jesus Christ was that singular, salvific individual prophesied and prefigured, anticipated and expected throughout the Old Testament who would come, who, who indeed had come to bring true and final redemption for the people of God, releasing them from the curse of sin and establishing them in the kingdom of God. But significantly, it was from that point that the second half of Matthew's gospel really begins as we start to walk with Jesus and the disciples down from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem on essentially what is now the journey to the cross. The very next vignette, Matthew 16, 21, introduces the shadow of the cross that will hang over everything that will come after it. As Jesus tells his disciples that what it means for him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, means that he will have to go to Jerusalem, and he will have to suffer, and he will have to die. And then crucially, verse 24 he says, not only is crucifixion the means of atonement, it is also to be the shape of those who would benefit from that atonement. So Matthew 16, verse 20, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Right? Jesus says to them, you're right disciples. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And what that means is that I have to take up my cross. And if you are going to be my disciples, if you are going to come after me, if you are going to benefit from my atoning work, then you must take up your cross as well. It was the vital understanding that King Jesus demands total loyalty from those who would benefit from his work. It is the vital understanding that confessing Jesus as the Christ is twofold. He is the one who will save his people from their sins, but he will do it as the great Savior King. And if anyone would take a place in his kingdom, there is to be an understanding that he requires a total submission, right? Far from the notions of a non-lordship salvation, Jesus here directly ties salvation to the understanding that you can only be saved, as Paul said, if you confess him as Lord. And what that means is that you give yourself up so that you live for him and for his kingdom. Now, this, this could be a hard pill for us to swallow. In our decadent Western society, we are so used to personal preference coming first in virtually everything that we do, right? We see it from the trivial things, like the overwhelming amount of options that you're given at the restaurant of your choice, to the important things of how people will pick and choose and chop and change churches when it no longer suits their desires. But one of the interesting things that we are seeing this past week and in these coming weeks, coming out of Ukraine, is something that is totally running counter to our decadent Western mindset. We are seeing people putting loyalty to kingdom before their own personal preference. Now, do you ask these men who are fighting on the streets of Kiev this week, would you rather be with your wife and child in Poland or here fighting urban warfare? I think their preference would be to be with their wife and family in safety. But there is something greater than personal preference that is driving them. Loyalty to their kingdom compels them to fight. We're seeing it in the most extraordinary images of a president who is taking up arms, something that we have to admit is unimaginable in our country. A president who's not hiding behind bulletproof glass, who's not hiding in a, in a basement, who's not hiding behind a wall of soldiers, but who himself has taken up arms to go 
and fight for kingdom. Loyalty to the kingdom, trumping personal preference, right? That's the dynamic of Christ's kingdom. That's what he's saying. It's Philippians 2, isn't it? Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and so on. We've said this before, but we're so quick in Philippians 2 to jump to the Christological implications of that passage. What it tells us about about Jesus in the incarnation, and, and it tells us wonderful things about Jesus in the incarnation, but why does Paul tell us these things? Because he wants it to be the mind that we have in ourselves. This is an ethical passage. He says, life in the kingdom of Christ means that you don't look to your own interests. Just what Jesus says, life in his kingdom means taking up your cross, dying to self to live for him. But hard on the heels of all of that, this is is the point, because I think there's there's an intentional progression in Matthew's gospel. Hard on the heels of that, Jesus saying, Yes, I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. It means I will, I will go and I'll take up my cross, but it means that you, if you're going to benefit from me, you must take up your cross too. Hard on the heels of that, Jesus then takes Peter and James and John up on the mountain where they witness this glorious transformation. No longer do they see before them Jesus, the impoverished Galilean preacher, but instead they behold Jesus radiant with glory his face shining like the sun, his clothes radiant, white as light. You understand Jesus is not physically altered before them. It's the same man, Jesus, that stands before them. But now the dullness of his earthly condition is stripped away, and these disciples behold the true glorious divine nature of Peter's confession, and they see standing before them the Christ, the Son of the living God in all of His radiant, unimaginably wonderful, magnificent glory. And I think this is, this is central to what Peter is saying here in Second Peter 1. Right? What the disciples saw on that Mount of Transfiguration, it was a a lifting of the curtain to behold the future glory of Jesus. What did did the disciples see on that mountain? They saw the same thing that John sees in Revelation 1. They see that, that glory of Jesus that we will all behold when Jesus returns to usher in his 2 Peter 1.11, his eternal kingdom, that kingdom of the age to come. Right on that Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John beheld, verse 3, the full glory and excellence of Jesus. They saw the true wonder of the Jesus to whom they were united by faith. They got a foretaste of that coming reality of a world that is wholly free of corruption and devoid of sinful desire. J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle, who we 
quoted already in Sunday school in his um, in his uh, meditations on the on the Gospels. He says uh, we have in these verses a striking pattern of the glory in which Christ and his people will appear when he comes the second time. So Lyle says we have in these verses on the Mount of Transfiguration a striking pattern of the glory in which Christ and his people will appear when he comes the second time. There can be little question that this was one uh, main object of this wonderful vision. It was meant to encourage the disciples by giving them a glimpse of good things yet to come. That face shining as the sun and that raiment white as the light were intended to give the disciples some idea of the majesty in which Jesus will appear to the world when he comes the second time and all his saints with him. The corner of the veil was lifted up to show them their master's true dignity. And that's what Peter's saying. As he appeals to that Mount of Transfiguration here, what he is saying when it comes to ethics that flow from the gospel, Peter wants us to see how our salvation has transferred us positionally from the sphere of this world into the sphere of the world to come. And we need to be marked by the customs and the habits of that coming world that we are now citizens of. I think it's the logic of Matthew's progression. A confession of Jesus as Christ demands a self-crucifixion, a death to self, and a life to Christ. Because he is wholly worth it, but also because it is the very nature of the thing that we are being saved to. We are saved from the wrath of God by the crucifixion of Jesus, but we are saved to a life of total but joyful submission to the will of Christ. As our pride and self-will is purged by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and is instead replaced by a Romans 12, one heart, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, or a Romans 12, two heart that is not conformed to this world, but that is transformed through the renewing of our minds. What Jesus gives his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, hard on the heels of what has just come before it, not by accident, but, but as part of this intentional progression, Jesus gives his disciples a foretaste of that coming kingdom. 
Right? And what is the very first thing that he wants them to see? He wants them to see that that kingdom is a kingdom of, of utter righteousness. Right? Think of the images that we're given in Revelation 21 of that coming kingdom of Christ. John says, Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's an image of moral purity. This new Jerusalem, purified now from any defilement, perfect and adorned in holiness to be united to Christ, the perfectly righteous bridegroom. It's the completion of Ephesians 5, isn't it? It's the second half of what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Is that not exactly what John shows us in Revelation 21? The full sanctification of the church in her final glorification as she is wholly beautified to be finally and fully united to Christ, her holy bridegroom. It's an image that's further solidified when we hear Jesus speak in Revelation 21 verse 5. He says, and, I, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the string of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, which is sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You, you hear what that image is, is portraying, this coming kingdom, this eternal kingdom, this kingdom of the age to come that Peter talks about in verse 11. It is a kingdom that is marked by holiness marked by a joyful submission to the law of God, a kingdom where sin has no place, a kingdom where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, a kingdom where we are fully and finally delivered from evil with no temptations to beset us. What Peter is saying is that the kingdom of God on earth now, the church, well, it is to be a foretaste of that coming reality. Now we, Christians, we're not transfigured like Jesus was on the mountain, but Peter is saying there's a sense in which we are to live driven by that foretaste of a coming reality, and we are to live lives that are now noticeably transformed so that people can see in us a glimpse of that coming kingdom. Why is it? that immigrant communities have such a hard time. 
it's often because they're reluctant to assimilate to their new culture. The German immigrants in St. Louis in the 19th century were vilified by the English-speaking population because they came with their Roman Catholicism and they came with their own food and they came with their own architecture and they came with their own language and they refused to give any of it up. And why did they refuse to give it up? Because they never stopped being German. In their minds, they didn't come to America to become Americans. As far as they were concerned, their hearts remained in Germany. And so they lived by the customs of the land to which their hearts truly belonged. That's what Peter's driving at here. Why do we pursue lives of virtue and love, verses 5, 6, and 7? Why do we make every effort, to use Peter's phrase, to pursue knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection? It is because they are the customs and the habits of the kingdom to which our hearts truly belong. They are the customs and habits of the kingdom in which our hearts reside, even though we are physically present here. Now, this is not Christian perfectionism. And we have to hammer into our heads our gospel grammar. The indicatives always come before the imperative. The saving work of God in Christ for unworthy sinners always comes first. There is no sense in which we must forsake sin before we come to Christ. Wretched, pitiful, we come to Him and we cast ourselves upon him and his mercy. But there is an imperative. And once we have come to Christ, we must forsake sin. And you understand this is a lifelong process. Justification is instantaneous. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness received. But sanctification, it will take a lifetime. A lifetime of starting again. A lifetime of having our hearts broken as we see how we have failed again. A lifetime of confessing our sins. As we prayed earlier, gloriously, not to a judge who's going to lower the boom on us, but to a, a father who has a heart of compassion to us. A lifetime of hearing again the reassuring words of the gospel that it is the faithfulness of Christ and not ours that will bear us home. A lifetime of starting again, coming again to Scripture, looking again at ourselves in that mirror, praying again for the help of the Holy Spirit, removing temptation from our lives again and making every effort again to pursue holiness. But we do it because we love Jesus. We do it because we have beheld his glory. We do it because we love his kingdom and we long to be there living forever under his righteous rule. And so we hold on to the customs of that kingdom now, reminding ourselves, reminding our hearts that our home is not here. Let us pray. Father in heaven, truly the wonders of our salvation, it is 
It is more than we could ever comprehend. But we do pray that your spirit would help us to apprehend it more and more. That we would see more and more the glories of Christ our King. That we would see more and more the wonders of the kingdom to which we are moving. And that we would be loosened more and more from the customs and habits of this kingdom. That we might truly live as sojourners here. Lord, help us. Help us to get a grip on the fullness of this rich gospel. And help us to live in a way that is compelled by it. And in a way that seeks to even give this present world a foretaste of that coming reality. Father, help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.